morning to you, and it's good to have you here. I'm going to pray for us, and uh, then we're going to dive into John chapter 11. And uh, thanks to Mike for uh, reading this morning and really getting it out there. So let me pray for us. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this morning. And uh, I just pray for us as we dive into a topic that uh, can be sometimes um, difficult for us on an emotional level, on a, on a spiritual level, that your spirit will really speak to us this morning. And Father, I pray for our, our faith. That just as uh, the faith of those who were part of the story was built up, I pray that our faith will be built up this morning as well. So I pray for these things now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Well, it's good to have you here. And we are in John chapter 11, as uh, you probably have figured that out by now. Um, We are making our way through the gospel of John, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And today we're coming to a story, as you probably have picked up on, that uh, it's a story we don't always, uh, I mean, it's exciting to read about, but when we think about it in real life, it can be challenging. Uh, and it feels like we're, we're kind of in a season, I'm not really sure, of um, memorial services right now. We had one here yesterday for uh, our brother Dennis Campbell, and many of you know that uh, Carol passed away yesterday. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were at a memorial service in Oregon for uh, Warren Fleischman, I know a couple of you were there. Um, Warren was a, a senior pastor when I was a youth pastor and I served under him. So I had a lot of experience uh, with Warren in terms of um, ministry and uh, just doing life together. And so we went to the service and we're kind of connected to the family. And, and so, you know, we had heard, oh, it's going to be a short service. It won't be that long. We got there and I opened up the program and I noticed there were five different pastors involved in the service. And I looked at my wife and I said, an hour and a half. This is going to be an hour and a half, which I, I'm not really good at sitting uh, for very long. And so I was already kind of getting anxious, you know, kind of sitting there and wiggling around. And, and it felt like, I mean, in one sense, it's a long time uh, to sit. Hopefully you're not going to sit for an hour and a half today, but it was a long time to, to sit. But on the other hand, I was thinking it's also very short, right? It's a very short amount of time to, to think about someone's life. Um, to review uh, what it is that they did and what God did through them. You know, and there's, there's pictures and, and um, a slideshow and there's, there's stories and, and people talking about how he impacted their life. In that sense, that 90 minutes is not very long at all. And yet it's also kind of appropriate because life is short. And life is like a blink in, in human history. And I, my goal isn't to bum you out today, but to think about that, that reality it's short. It's quick. And for many of us, um, it's feeling quicker all the time. And funerals have this way of, of making you think, at least for me, on a whole bunch of levels all at once. Like on one level, when I'm in a memorial service, I'm obviously thinking about the person. I'm thinking about their life. I'm thinking about the interaction. You know, maybe thinking things like, I wish I had spent more time with them, or, you know, I wish I had told them I love them more often, or that kind of stuff. And so there's kind of that interaction. Then there's another level, oftentimes, when I'm in a memorial service, and that is I I look at the people around me that I love. I think about people in my life, and I think to myself, "Am am I... Am I serving them well? Am I loving them well? And then maybe like you, sometimes I kind of make a commitment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to love the people around me better. And, you know, I'm going to focus on them more in the future. Do you ever do that? Like I could do better as a husband, as a father, as a friend. And so that's kind of another level I experience when I go to memorial services. But then there's a third one, and you've probably experienced this too, where we think about ourselves. Like we think about the fact that someday 
There are going to be a bunch of people gathered together, and they're going to be talking about you. They're going to be talking about me. There's going to be some slides about you. You didn't get to pick them out. They're going to pick them out. They're going to tell some stories. How long will they take? A half hour, an hour, three hours to sum up your life? To sum up what you meant to them? And then they'll, you know, be done and have some potato salad and go on their way, right? And it, it has a way of making you think about your life, doesn't it? Like evaluating your life. Am I doing this right? Am I loving right and living right and serving right? What are people going to say about me? How am I going to impact their life? And I think the way that we experience that sometimes at a memorial service or just when we're thinking about life and death is, you know, there's several ways we can think about it. Sometimes I, I talk with people who say, you know, this is life on the side of the grave is all there is. It's all there is. There's nothing else. And once this life is over, it is over. So you better make the most of the time that you have. But then some people go, well, so what's the point? Like, why make the most? Why sacrifice? Why, like, just do what you want. Because when life is over, it's over. And who cares what people say about you? And who cares what pictures they show? Because you're dead. On the other hand, there are people who think, you know what? There's more to life than, than this life. There's more to it. There are realities beyond just the reality that we, you know, the senses touching and smelling and tasting, and there's more to life than that. That, that death, in fact, is not an end. That death is a, a doorway, or death is a transition. On the other hand, maybe there's still a little bit of fear, right? Like, we're not exactly sure what's it going to be like, and, you know, maybe there's the, the, the fear of the unknown. And then sometimes I see people who are Christians who kind of compartmentalize, if this makes sense. So there's, there's kind of like there's this life and there's a life to come. And they're just, they're two different things all together. And, and I'm just gonna try to get through this life and not do anything really stupid and, and just be a good person so that when this life is over and I go through the door, God will say, you were pretty good, you know, come on in. We want people like you in here. And, and then I just, so I can enjoy the next life and, and live in my mansion and my, my favorite pets will be with me. The other one's not so much. Today's passage, we're talking about this, this theme, this theme of life and, and death and actually then life again. And the story starts with uh, a perceived crisis. I, I'm using the word perceived because it was a crisis depending on who you were. Not everybody was in crisis mode in this story. In 11, John 11 chapter, John 11 chapter 11 verse 1, I'm going to get that right. I didn't have enough coffee today. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we know a few things about this family, these three siblings, um, from Luke chapter 10. There's a story there. You might remember about Jesus coming to their house and teaching and and we know, for, for instance, Mary was this, was this woman who just loved to sit at the feet of Jesus when he was around, and she would listen to his sermons, and she'd fill in the blanks and take notes and sit there at his feet. And, and, and John, interesting, makes a, a mention in this passage about something that hasn't happened yet, but is, is going to. Remember, John's just writing, thinking about all this, but he's like, yeah, in the next chapter, in chapter 12, there's gonna be a story about Mary pouring perfume on Jesus' feet, and wiping them with her hair, and that's actually next week's sermon, but he's kind of pointing forward to that, and then there's Martha, her sister, type A, um, she's in a hospitality, but she's very, 
You're kind of busy and maybe a little bit high strung and anxious. And, but she also loves the Lord. So they both love the Lord. They just, they're very different people. And then there's Lazarus. So it's been noted that because we really don't know anything about Lazarus, speculation is he was the younger brother. You know, he really didn't do any chores or anything. He just kind of get that picture. In fact, in, the, in next week's story, he's just kind of sitting at the table while everyone else is doing stuff. But Jesus has a unique connection with this family. Um, he loves them, and um, scholars believe that a lot of times when it talks about Jesus going to Bethany, that this was the place, this was kind of his retreat. And he would go there often, and when he would be there, he could just, kick off his sandals and, you know, take it easy, and that was kind of his, his safe place that he would go. Verse three, so the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So Lazarus has some kind of illness, and we don't know what it is, but it's obviously very serious, serious enough where the sisters think they have to send a message to Jesus. And it's interesting, by the way, to note, isn't it, that they somehow had access to Jesus that allowed them to, you know, send a little message, a little text Right, and they knew that he would get it. it probably, you probably get a lot of texts from people you never see. You just kind of block them. But right, there's certain people, you'll look at their texts anytime, and that's kind of what's going on here. And notice they didn't say, um, he's sick, please come immediately. They don't do that. They don't, there's no request here. They just assume that when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is ill, that he's going to come. And what's also interesting is they don't mention Lazarus by name. Right? They, they call him he whom you love. Edward Clink in his commentary notes this, and I, I think this is a great point. He says, the entire gospel so far has depicted the love that God has for the world in general, right? John three sixteen, God so loved the what? The world. So it's just kind of a general how he loves the world. But for the first time in this book, an individual is described as being loved by God, indeed, actually an entire family, uh, a brother and a couple of sisters. So now we're kind of getting a picture of what does it look like when God loves you? What does it look like when God loves an an individual? Verse four. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. This is a strange statement because, of course, it does lead to death, and then it doesn't lead to death, right? It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So where the sisters see a crisis, Jesus sees something else. He sees an opportunity. He, he sees that God is working, that God is up to something, that there's a purpose. purpose. This is not random, and I say that because so many times in life we just think of things as random. We, we experience them, sometimes even hard things, right? We put it over in this random category. So I came across this infographic recently. I, I, I don't mean to bum you out, okay? This is, this is a, some statistics done on the odds of death accidentally for, this is based Uh, in 2020 on a U.S. citizen who lives to be 77 years old, and these are the odds over a lifetime that you will die from one of these accidents. You're going to be glad you came. Um, Right? Odds of dying from a lightning strike, 138,849 to 1. Those don't seem like huge odds. I mean, I actually know someone who's been struck by lightning. She didn't die, so she didn't. Dog attack is even more likely. 69,000 to one that you'll be attacked by a dog and it won't end well. Uh, more likely, you'll die from a bee or wasp sting. This is a great airplane run I'm just gonna move on from. Drowning, other than a pool, drowning is 10,000, basically 10,300 to one. Uh, it gets worse when you get to swimming pool. Sunstroke, about 63 
100 to 1? Drowning in a swimming pool is more likely. Choking on food is even more likely. Watch out for those potlucks. Accidental uh, building fire, uh, 1,800 to 1. Even more likely that you'll die from alcohol poisoning. The last two are complications from medical or surgical care. Those aren't really great odds, but look at this. These are the odds that you'll die in an auto accident. 101 to 1, almost 50,000 Americans every year die in automobile accidents. See, aren't you glad you came? Um, Jesus says, though, this is not an accident. This is This is not a random thing. And he says this, this illness does not lead to death. In other words, in the Greek, it literally reads, it isn't for the purpose of death. That's not why this is is happening. The purpose, he says, is for the glory of God. So what does that mean? Well, technically, the word glory means the manifestation of God's being, nature, or presence. In other words, it's just getting a bigger picture of God. We, We like to always say that God is infinite in his being. And we, we can grow in our understanding of that. And that's really what's going on here. Jesus says, you're about to get a picture of God that is much bigger than it is at this moment. In verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So now we see that he, he loves all the siblings here. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, and this is weird, he stayed or he delayed two days longer and the place where he was. So now this is interesting. Earlier when it said, the, the sister said, the one whom you love, the Greek word there is phileo, which is kind of a friendship love, uh, a brotherly love. But here, when it says that Jesus loved them, it's the word agape, which is, which is a higher love, which is a God love. We call it an other-centered, sacrificial, serving love. So the point here is this. They, they think that Jesus loves their brother in a friendship way, and what we find out is he loved them even more than that. And so when you know that, you might expect that Jesus would, you know, get an Uber donkey and head directly to Bethany to be there. But instead it says, we could kind of translate it, Jesus loves Lazarus so much that he, he stayed away, which seems kind of weird. And I think when we're, when we're going through crisis and we're praying for God to show up right now and God delays, right, it can feel a little bit like God doesn't care. We're going to see that the sisters feel this way. It can feel like, well, God doesn't care, or, you know, my thing isn't that important. There's so many things going on in the world right now that need God's attention. You ever feel like that? Why would God, like, be concerned about me? Or, or God really isn't involved in stuff like mine. It's kind of small. Or maybe we feel like he doesn't really love me right now. There's that thing I did or that thing I said, and he's just up there giving me the silent treatments. And, right? But in John 11, it says that God's delay is out of love. God's delay, even though it may not feel like what's best for us, it is what's best for us. And we may not know all the details of why God is delaying, but but that's where faith comes in, right? Faith trusts. We always say that the the providence of God, right? That the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God, these things that go together, we say God is sovereign. God always accomplishes his will, and God is good, so his will is always good for us. So when we put those together, it says that we can, we can trust him. So for two days, Jesus delays and goes about his work, whatever he was doing. And meanwhile, I, I picture like the sisters going out every hour and looking down the road. Is he coming? Do you see him? We don't know where he is. Verse seven, and then after this, 
he said to the disciples, now let us go to Judea again. And then there's this discussion about, they just tried to kill you there, Jesus. Are you sure about this? And Jesus says, yes, we gotta go while we can go when it's daylight, when you know, we can do this stuff. And you know, Thomas is like, all right, let's go and we'll die with him. Verse 11, and after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and, and sleep. So that, that phrase in the Greek, fallen asleep, is it appears uh, 18 times in the New Testament. 14 of those times, it's a reference to death. And four times, it's a reference to actually taking a nap. It's a, it's a metaphor, most often, for death. But the disciples misunderstood him, and I I tried to imagine being there, and I think I can understand how this happens, right? Because he gets a message, well, Lazarus is, is dying, you've got to come, and Jesus says, well, let's wait for a couple of days, and I think maybe when Jesus talked about it, he was just so relaxed, he wasn't panicked or, you know, freaking out because, right, because he knows how the story's going to end, and I think he's just probably so casual about it, they're thinking, well, he must, well, he must mean sleep, he, he couldn't obviously mean death. Verse 14, then Jesus tells them plainly because they don't understand, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And there it is. There's the reason he delayed. There's the purpose. It was for their faith. So they could see the glory of God and their faith could be increased. And notice what he says. He says, I am glad. I'm glad I wasn't there. It brings joy to God when we grow spiritually. In fact, it's his priority for you. His, I don't know what your priority is. I don't know what's at the top of your to-do list today. But I think at the top of God's to-do list for you today is that you would grow spiritually. That's not always our priority. Sometimes we'd rather take the easy route or the comfortable route or the fun route. But God wants you to grow spiritually. And sometimes it's, it's through things that are difficult. Jesus says, but let us go to him. Notice he says, let us go to him. The him is Lazarus. He doesn't say, let us go to the sisters. He says, let us go to him as if Lazarus is still alive, but he's not. Which brings a crucial question. When we come to verse 17, and we go on here, it says in verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb, already been dead for four days. So let's do a little timeline here. The way this probably works is, Lazarus is sick, and the sisters are gonna send a message to Jesus. And so the messenger goes to Jesus, it takes about a day. But the theory goes that probably shortly after he left with this message, Lazarus dies. So that by the time the message actually gets to Jesus, Lazarus is already dead. In fact, he's been dead for a day. And then we have day two and day three where Jesus just kind of dwaddles, you know, <laughs> waits. And then we have day four where Jesus with the disciples travels to Bethany to, to be there. So it's a total of four days, but, but Lazarus has been dead for four days now. Now, people wonder why four days? Why not two days? Why not seven days? What, what, what's up with that? Now, we know that there were rabbis, and a common teaching in that day from the rabbis was this, that when someone died, their soul would kind of hover over the body for three days in case it could re-enter the body. But then on the fourth day, the theory goes, as the body begins to decay, the, the soul sees what's happening, and then it takes off and goes to wherever the soul goes. And this is superstition, but this is what most people believed in those days. And so some theorize that Jesus is just confirming that Lazarus is, in fact, 
truly dead. He's not mostly dead, he's completely dead. So that even for those who held to this you know, unbiblical superstition, there's just not gonna be any question when Jesus gets there, they're like, this is beyond hope at this point. Verse 19, now many of the Jews who had come to Martha and to Mary to console them uh, concerning their brothers. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated at the house. So Judaism in those days required that a body be buried on the day that it, that it passed. And then it would be followed by six days of mourning on the part of the family for a total of seven. And during that time, the family would remain in their home and friends would come and, and console them and they would bring food and provide for them. So by leaving the gathering, Martha is both kind of breaking protocol, but she's showing a tremendous amount of honor to Jesus by going to him as he's, he's coming into the town. Verse 21, and then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So Martha basically says, you know, you should have been here. You could have been here. Where were you? She's just kind of letting him have it here. I, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, like, God, if you'd just shown up when I asked, if you just answered my prayer when I asked, when I was going through that hard thing, at work or relationally or what, if you would just come and acted right away, right, everything would be fine. And that's basically what she's saying. She's saying, you blew it, Jesus. You, you should have been here. And Martha is correct in the fact that she believed that Jesus had the power to heal. But she's also incorrect because she believes that his ability to heal is limited to this side of the grave. When she says, God will give you whatever you ask, it becomes apparent later on, except for she doesn't believe that he could raise someone from the dead. And so she's both correct and, and, and incorrect here. And John MacArthur suggests this in his commentary. He says, maybe Martha had just never even considered the possibility that Jesus would raise him from the dead. And, and who can blame her for that? that? That was not, you know, part of their experience. It wasn't what they would have expected. So we can kind of understand where she's coming from here. And then Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So they're kind of talking past each other at this point. Jesus says, he's gonna rise again, and he means like really soon. And she thinks that he's talking about the resurrection on, on the last day. So the resurrection on the last day, the Jews believed in that day that at the end of human history, those who were believers, their bodies would be resurrected. There, there was actually um, a debate going on between the Pharisees who believed in resurrection, and the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection. And in fact, I was, I was taught back in Bible college, you can remember, right, Pharisees believed and the Sadducees didn't believe, which is why they're so sad, you see. There you go. So anyways, you can remember that. So there, there's kind of a debate that's going on. I apologize. Um, and notice, uh, she says, I know. She says, I know. And in the Greek, there's kind of this undertone of discontent. Like, like I know that someday he will rise from the dead. But Jesus, I'm hurting today, and I'm, I'm sorrowful today, and I wish that you had shown up earlier. So this wouldn't have happened. And then Jesus says to her, right, some words you're probably familiar with, I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. A little bit of a confusing statement, and then he asks her, do you believe this? This is the fifth of the I am statements if you're keeping track. 
So far in John, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the light of the world, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, and now I'm the resurrection and the life. And notice, he doesn't merely say, I give resurrection and life. He says, I am resurrection and life. That's who he is. And it's been noted that the combination of those two things is significant. Because resurrection was typically used to, to talk about the life to come, but life was usually used to talk about now, from now until the grave. And so Jesus kind of puts these together. And what he's saying is this, that when we believe in Christ, he provides a, a, a new kind of life that is both our present reality and our, our future reality. They're, they're both of those things all wrapped up in one. And he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So what is he saying? He says, when we believe in Christ, he takes away our sin. He makes us right with God. He brings our soul to life through the power of the Holy Spirit who, who now dwells in us. And he gives us a life. It's been said a believer is given more life, right? that is eternal life, and a different kind of life right now. And again, just note, Jesus lumps these together. He isn't really talking about whether well, there's this life and then there's that life. He's, he's kind of combining them as if somehow they're just one thing. In fact, that's kind of what he's saying. He's saying for the Christian, when our soul is brought back to life. So he, he kind of gives two pictures. There's the body, and the body will die and be brought back, but there's the soul. And when the soul is brought to life, nothing can ever separate the soul from the presence of, of God. It, it, when we go from this life to the next life, the soul's immediately in the presence of, of God. There is no death ever for the soul of a believer. And then he asks, do you believe this? And, and her response is kind of interesting, right? She, she basically says, you know, I, I, I believe in you as, the, as uh, the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So does Martha really understand everything that he's saying? No, but she believes in him. And that's, that's basically what we do, isn't it? When we come to Christ and when we place our faith in him, we don't understand everything. We don't have it all figured out, but we, we trust him. So Martha goes home. And she tells Mary, Jesus is outside of the town and he'd like to see you. And so Mary tries to sneak out of the house. There's a bunch of people there and they're mourning and stuff. And she tries to sneak out, but everybody thinks she's going to, to the tomb. So they all follow her. She's trying to be sneaky. They follow her. They go outside of town and there's Jesus. And notice, this sounds a little familiar. It says, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So it's an interesting thing because she worships him with her body, right? She, she gets down on her knees, she worships him, but with her words, she accuses him. She's a person in conflict, which I think is not unlike us at times, is it? Right? There are times when we, maybe we worship the Lord, but we have questions, we have doubts, and we have concerns. And I love the grace that Jesus has for her in that conflicted situation, which brings us to our next point, a, a new reality that Jesus wants to make known to us. So notice how he responds to her. He doesn't correct her or rebuke her or say, where's your faith? It just says this, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and then he says this, he was deeply moved in his spirit, and he was greatly troubled. And John describes in the Greek, Jesus in a way that is notoriously difficult to interpret. In fact, what I found is interesting that almost every 
uh, Greek scholar agrees on how to interpret this phrase, but I can't find a Bible that actually does it. And I think there's probably a reason for that, but D.A. Carson basically translates that phrase, deeply moved in spirit, this way. He was outraged in spirit, and he was troubled. That The word there for deeply moved, it's one word. It literally means outrage, or it means anger. So it's interesting, isn't it, that our Bibles don't put it that way because it can have this aspect of compassion, but why is he angry? Why is Jesus so angry in this situation? Now, he's obviously not angry like, oh, I, you know, I got here too late. You know, now I'm mad at myself. Or He's not angry because Lazarus is dead because he knows what he's about to do. He's probably like, you know, trying to contain the excitement about what, what's about to happen. So why is he angry? And I think here probably what's going on is, remember, Jesus is eternal. He has come from heaven, a place that is not touched or infected by sin, a place that is what we would call beautiful and and perfect. And he created a world of beauty and and a world of purpose and a world of, of joy and peace, but he also knows what sin has done to this world, how it has ravaged every human being, how it has ravaged every relationship, how it has ravaged creation itself and health and life. And he is angry. He is angry to see how sin has infected our existence, to know what it could have been, what it should have been, and what it actually is. And how it has infected our our knowledge and, and how it has infected our wisdom that is now like foolishness and what it's done to our perspective on, on life and, and what it's, how it's created anxiety and, and stress and tensions in our world and conflict and sadness and, and, and people are just chasing after lesser things and, and death itself and, and the hopelessness that people feel when they think about death and when they're at a memorial service and when they're thinking about their own life and as Jesus sees, it breaks his heart, but it breaks his heart in an angry way because he knows what should have been. He knows what could have been. And I think that's hard for us to relate to because we, we, we just get so comfortable with sin and when it's, with its consequences and, and, and sometimes we even live in this relationship with sin that is not appropriate and we don't, we don't see life the way that Jesus does. And in verse 34, it says this, he says, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then shortest verse in the Bible, there's two words, Jesus wept. That word wept, dakruo in the Greek, literally just, it means um, to shed moisture from the eyes. So, so some, some tears come out. But it doesn't have the aspect of, of um, anything vocal. So it's just some tears that are coming out. It's not like the word that was used earlier to describe um, Mary and the people who are weeping. That word means to wail. It means to, to, to yell out loud. That's not what Jesus is doing. He has experienced all the pain and, and sorrow and hurt and betrayal and difficulties that you will ever face in life. And he knows how you feel. And he cares about that. But he doesn't wail hopelessly because he knows the power of God. He feels with you. He feels for you, but he's not hopeless. Because in the same way that he knows what's about to happen with Lazarus, he knows what your future is in Christ. And so while he identifies with the pain you feel now, he's filled with joy and excitement for your future. 
probably more than many of, of us are. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how Jesus loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from, from dying? So they viewed Jesus as a miracle worker, but in a limited way, he could heal someone of blindness or heal someone of, of illness, but not from death. And then Jesus moved, uh, deeply moved again, that is angered again, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Now Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. I have to admit, this is one of the rare times I actually prefer the King James Version that says, by this time he stinketh. Uh, for he, he has been dead four days. So a, a typical tomb in those days was expensive. And uh, so you wouldn't just put one person in a tomb. Usually it was carved out of a rock hillside and, and there would be room for eight occupants in there. So Lazarus's tomb might have had other people who were already in there and, and there would be an odor. Martha's point is simply that the corpse is decomposing. He is dead. He is, he is very, very dead. That's the point. And she was right about Lazarus. He was very dead, but she was wrong about Jesus. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, he prayed, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. So it says Jesus prays again. So he's already prayed about this. He's already talked to the Father about this. This is interesting to me. He does kind of a, a, a group prayer. Because he just wants to make sure that before he does what he's about to do, that everyone knows that this is done in, the, in, in conjunction. It's the work of the Father and the work of the Son. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and, and let him go. It says he spoke with a loud voice. You might not know Greek, but you'll know this in the Greek. Uh, the word, two words there are megasphone. And we get the word megaphone from it. It's like Jesus is trying to wake up someone who isn't dead, but who is asleep in a sense. You know anybody who sleeps really, really soundly and you can't simply say, wake up. You kind of have to yell at them. You have to megasphone to get them awake. And, and in fact, when it says uh, uh, Jesus says Lazarus come out in the Greek, it's three words. He says, Lazarus, here outside. So he's calling him right now, right? Lazarus, get out here. And the dead body's wrapped up in linen, so, you know, Lazarus is kind of hopping out. It's not like when I wake up in the morning and I'm super groggy and like, he's like instantly able to exert himself and to hop out of the tomb. But imagine, just think about for a moment what it would have been like to be there. Do you think that their faith would have been impacted in that moment? Do you think that it would change the way that they look at life and look at death? Do you think that they would have said, think about this, do you think that they would have said, with, you know, they're still drying tears from their eyes from all the pain and the sorrow, do you think they would have said, yeah, that was worth it? Yeah, if I had to do that all over again, sign me up. Right? How many times in life is it like that? We don't like going through it, we don't want to go through it, but once we do, we see the beauty of God's plan for us. I think they would have said, oh, I'd do that all over again. And, and notice what it says here. John calls Lazarus, notice the man who had died. That's his new identity. That's his new, when he goes to parties, that's his name tag. I was a guy 
formerly dead, right? Like that's, who wouldn't want to go around? There would have been a, if that happened today, there'd be a book deal and a movie and you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Like that, that redefined him. That is a thing that redefined Lazarus. Can, can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? And it says this actually, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They did not believe. It's unbelievable in a way that everyone in that moment didn't just fall on their knees in faith. Some went and told the Pharisees, and we'll pick up that story next week, but many believed, and this is why Jesus delayed, so that they would believe. And by the way, this is why John wrote down this story, so that you would believe. So what do we, what do, we do with this? I was trying to imagine, like, how do you think Lazarus lived after that experience like when he woke up in the morning do you think he woke up differently after he rose from the dead do you think he realized the gift of that day in a way that he had not recognized before what do you think about each meal that he sat down to eat do you think he had a newfound appreciation for that meal how about people how about his relationships Do you think that he thought about people differently now, knowing what he knew? Do you think that maybe there was something he wanted them to know now even more forcefully than he had before? Like, they have to know about Jesus. They have to know about him who has the power to raise us from the dead. Do you think it transformed the way he talked with his sisters and the way he talked with his friends? Do you think that it changed the way that he faced difficult stuff? Do you think maybe there was a challenge or... Maybe he went back to school and he flunked the test. And you think maybe it changed the way that he thought about that? Like, you know, this isn't the end of the world. I've, I've faced more difficult stuff than, than this. You think it changed the way he thought about getting older and, 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 and ill health? Think if he got the flu, he would have been like, yeah, this is nothing, you know. <laughs> I mean, I, I died. Or financial problems or maybe people who didn't like him. People wanted to kill him. We'll see next week, oddly enough. People want to kill him for coming back from the dead. I would imagine it changed how he experienced everything. Every last thing. Again, back in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives in in me, believes in me, shall never die. Do you believe this? And Jesus asked Martha a life-defining question. Do you believe this? Not do you hope it's true, but do you believe it? And he's asking that question of every one of us today. Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Do you believe that Jesus is God, eternal? That that he came from heaven? That he lived in a body like ours? That he lived a life? he, He experienced what we experience that he revealed God to us? Do you believe that, that his words were true? Do you believe that he went to a cross where he suffered and where he died, having never sinned, but he took on your sin? And he paid the penalty for that on the cross. He suffered, he bled, he died. He was buried, but he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose on the third day. Do you believe this? Do you believe that those who place their faith in Christ Those who trust in Christ are those whose soul will never die. And this isn't just an intellectual question like answer it right on a test and that's the point. 
This is about trust, because that's what faith is. Faith is trust, and trust will profoundly change your perspective. It will change the way you experience life today. In the book 4,000 Weeks, Oliver Berkman writes this. He's not a Christian, but I just thought this was so fascinating. He tells a story about a guy named uh, Jeff Lye. He says, Jeff Lye, a British environmental consultant, once told me that after the sudden and premature death of his friend and colleague, David Watson, he would find himself stuck in traffic, not clenching his fists in agitation as he usually would, but wondering, what would David have given to be caught in this traffic jam? It was the same for lines in supermarkets or customer service calls that kept them on hold for, for far too long. In the past, it would, have, it would have bothered him, but now his focus was no longer exclusively on what he was doing in that moment, but that he was doing it, that he got to do it, that he got to be there with an upwelling of gratitude that took him by surprise. It doesn't take a long cognitive jump to remember our mortality, the fact that we even exist as a miracle in the first place. The possibility that it could end at any moment is equal parts terrifying and inspiring to soak it all in. But for the Christian, the terrifying part has been taken care of. Because we can see life from a new perspective, from the perspective of, of faith. In Colossians 3, it tells us this, since then, you have been raised. Scripture says that when we become believers, it's, it's as if we have been baptized in the death of Christ. That we have died to the old life and we've been raised to a brand new life, not just someday, but today. We are raised to a new life today. You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died. You died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You were buried with Christ in his death and you have now been raised to new life in Christ, and it should change the way that you view life. We no, longer, we no longer look down, we look up. We look up to the Lord, and we trust him in every situation. Because Jesus has conquered sin and death, we don't have to be afraid of death, or anxious about it, or, or stressed about it. Because we have eternal life. Eternal life means that we are now free to live life the way God designed. So, we are now free to serve other people with our time. Right before you came to Christ, people would say, what's the, what's the most valuable thing that you have? Well, they would say, time. Right, days, it's the most valuable thing you have. You only have a certain amount and then it's all gone. But in Christ, we have a limitless amount of time now. We have tons of time. So now on this side of the grave, we are free to serve other people, to give up our time and to serve them because we have tons of time. Right? So we serve them and we love them and we sacrifice. We're now free to live boldly for Christ because what's the worst thing that people can do to us? Well, they can kill our body, I suppose, but they, they can't kill our soul. We are, we are now free to love as Christ has loved us. We are now free to forgive people that are maybe hard to forgive and love people who are hard to love, right? Because Christ has forgiven us and we are we're set free. We're now free to tell other people the good news of the gospel boldly and freely. Let me ask you this. What do you need to view from an eternal perspective right now? What is it in life right now that you've just been looking at in a very limited, small way? Where do you need to look up and not look down? Because death no longer has power over you. We have been set free. 
We have been raised to new life in Christ so we can now live in a new way to follow the Lord boldly. Let me ask you this. What is God calling you today to live in light of the resurrection? He is the resurrection and he is the life. And if you placed your faith in him, that is now what you have. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this, this story. Uh, there's so much more here for us to think about, but our time is done. And I, I, I pray for us right now. Father, I pray, first of all, that everyone in this room has, has trusted in Christ. And if you've, you've never done that, you can just do that right now. You don't need to walk the aisle or go through a membership class. You can just right now, right here, we say this every weekend, you can just place your faith. You can trust You can go from not trusting right now to trusting in Christ right in this moment. And for those of us who have done that, who have have placed our faith in Christ, Father, I just want to pray for us today that you would would help us if there's any way right now in which we've been been living as if there is no resurrection. We've been living as if there is no life after this life. I pray that you will give us your perspective your eternal perspective, to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life right now, right here and forever. Help us to see today in light of eternity. Help us to see that relationship or that job or that, that, that education or that problem or that issue. Help us to see it in light of the fact that all of this is under your control and we can trust you. We can trust you today. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, 